get to come to open God's word together, for it's such a privilege because God has revealed himself to us in a special way, and that is through his written word, and we can come open it up to study it. And no matter how feeble my attempts are to communicate that, the Holy Spirit can take that, empower that, and to change lives through it. And so we come and to praise his name through his word. So let's bow our heads for a word of prayer as we come to his word. Father, we thank you for the privilege that we have to see how the God of all creation has chosen to speak to, through men your word and how special that is and how we have the greatest teacher available to us to give us understanding, to be able to apply it and to live it out so that we may show forth Christ in our life, to be his ambassadors, to be ones in which we represent you in a lost world. And we thank you especially how the Old Testament is not set apart and uncoupled from the new how from the beginning of the earliest chapters of the Bible through to the end gives us a scene, a flow, a theme that this is your son's story. How it is through the providential work of God that nothing is ever a surprise that you are sovereignly involved in every aspect of our lives in the lives of the worlds, in the lives of the nations, but especially how you begin to fulfill your eternal decree. And you have given us, the people of the church, the called out ones, the ability to represent you, to live forth for you, especially as these times grow darker and darker. So thank you, Father, that we can open your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. If you have your Bible, please open up to Genesis chapter 41. And if you looked in your bulletin this morning, there is a first coming from me. My sermon title has three titles to it. Didn't intend it to be, but it just, it just does. And so, one of those things. But we've been looking at the life of Joseph. For myself, over these last number of months, Joseph's life has been working in my heart to soften my heart to get a deeper understanding of the doctrine of the providence of God. Martin Lloyd-Jones, at the end of the 20th century, said something like this. He said, this doctrine is, the most, is one of the most defining doctrines that we have at the end of the 20th century. Steve Lawson has recently said concerning the doctrine of the providence of God that there is no rational explanation for what is going on in the world apart from the doctrine of the providence of God. This doctrine of providence is so needed because it teaches that God is in control of human history. The universe is not like that that the deist claims that God is the proverbial watchmaker who has made everything out of nothing, wound it up, and set the watch down to have it run on its own, making God distant and uninvolved. It is a picture of God being the captain of the ship, 
God is guiding, God is steering this, this ship day by day, hour by hour, moment by moment, second by second towards its appointed end. Providence is God's sovereignty in action. For I know that in the life of every believer, especially because I can see it in myself, through the counseling that I've done and see other men of God do, that every believer needs to have a thorough understanding of the providence of God. Because when the difficult times comes, it will give us comfort, it will give us direction, because disappointment, it seems, in this life is always sort of there in some form or another. And so we've been looking at this doctrine of the providence of God in the life of Joseph. And so we've seen it in chapter 38. We've seen it in chapter uh, 37 and 38 and 39 and 40. And you may be saying to yourself, all right, all right, I get it. God is providentially working in my life. Enough with the providence of God. But one of the reasons why I've been sort of getting deeper into the providence of God is the aspect that I firmly believe that the dark clouds of persecution to the church are not only on the horizon, but they have infiltrated into the valley and they are here upon us. And for when those dark days are finally felt with God's people, how we handle them, how we view them is key. Because it is the providential working of God to have his people in the right place, in the right time, properly prepared so that they can endure whatever trials, whatever circumstances that we may face. So it is more than just the aspect of what is going on in my own life or what is going on with my marriage, or what is going on with raising my children, or what is going on with my job um, at work, or, or my place within the church. All that is God's working. All that has is trials and circumstances that we may go through. Some of them are very heavy. Some of them are very light. Some of them are very joyful. Some we just don't know where to turn, and it is just so overwhelming. But when you throw the aspect of persecution into the picture, we need to have that understanding so we can, of the providence of God, to persevere, to have victory, to go on, to come alongside others who may be hurting because of things. And so we think that we have a working knowledge of the providence of God, but when those hard times come, we don't rest in our understanding of the providence of God. And so God has been working within my own heart. So God is teaching Joseph through his life to trust in his providence despite whatever situation. So it was through his situation in the pit He's teaching him his providence, that God is at work. It is through being sold into slavery. It is through the exaltation at Potiphar's house. It is through the um, accusation of rape by Potiphar's wife. It is through being thrown into prison. It is through the interpretation of the cupbearer and the dream. And it's through the years of silence after the cupbearer was restored and he forgot about Joseph. 
that God is at work within Joseph's heart to prepare him. So Joseph is learning about that aspect of providence, that God is at work. But also we have Joseph's story here in the generations of Jacob. So this is actually about the life of Jacob and how God is going to fulfill the promise in Jacob's life. And it's going to be coming about through Joseph. It is there to teach the nation of Israel, who is about to go into 400 silent years of slavery, that God is providentially at work. And there will be times in which they will cry out and feel that their prayers aren't being answered. And so during that time, they can look back and to see if God has worked through Joseph's life and his providence in working out those plans, that they can trust him when they feel that God is not at work. But yet there's an even larger picture here about God's providence. It's more than about Joseph, and it's more than just God trying to teach Israel about his providence. There's a bigger picture, because through Joseph's story, we do not know yet on how God is going to bring about that promised seed. Because if you look at the Jacob boys... They're all a bunch of scoundrels. Their lives are a mess. And somehow it seems like that promised seed may be squelched because of it. How could any of them bring about that promised seed? Who is going to get the family blessing? And that comes out. And through it all lays the foundation for the rest of Scripture. For it is through the line of Jacob, as we shall see, that through the line of Jacob the promised seed will come. But Jacob, not Jacob, excuse me, Judah. Excuse me. uh, Judah is a scoundrel along with everybody else. There's nothing redeeming about him that takes place yet. And so we come to Genesis chapter 41, which is really a most familiar test for for a lot of us. If you grew up in Sunday school, this is one of the good stories that we find about Joseph. For it begins with he's in prison, and then by the time the chapter ends, he's prime minister of Egypt. It's one of those stories in which, though it's true, if you're faithful to God, God will bless you in whatever situation that you find yourself in. Trouble is, for many of the health, wealth, and prosperity people, they sort of pile on that, that this is for you, that if you trust in God, God will give you the stuff. Well, that's not what the story is about, God giving you stuff. It's about faithfulness in the midst of difficulties. And so we come to Genesis chapter 41 to see God's providential um, workings. But through it all, I want to begin in what theologians of the past have said to help us understand about the providence of God. They looked at God's providence of God as the movements within the gears of like a pocket watch or a mantle clock. For if you open the back of a pocket watch, you can see the gears moving. Some move in a a, uh, clockwise fashion, and others move in an anti-clockwise fashion. That's British for counterclockwise, but I throw that out because I thought it was funny. And so it seemed like they're moving in two opposite directions. 
and somehow through the engineering of the watch that it brings about to keep perfect time, to keep the hands moving in a, a proper way. And so just by looking at it, you may not understand how it works because some of the gears are small and some of the gears are large. Some of the gears move the second hand, others move the minute hand, and others move the hour hand. And though we don't understand how the gears are moving inde uh, seemingly independently from each other, but they all work harmoniously together. It's almost like within our own life, we take two steps forward, but we feel like in our life, we take you know, five steps back. And it seems like God is working in one way, but somehow circumstances seem like they are working in another way. And so the wheels of direction may not always be clear to us, but there's one thing that is true. God is working in us, moving us forward. And so the last time that we saw Joseph, he was left in prison. And from Joseph's ex, uh, perspective, it's been one trial after another. When God was on his way um, to get a report about his brothers, it was more than, than just him uh, faithfully working for his father. It was setting the stage for God to providentially work in Joseph's life. And so when Joseph was on his way to his brothers, God had the pit in mind. When Joseph was in the pit, God had Potiphar in mind. When he was with Potiphar, God had prison in mind for Joseph. And when Joseph was in prison, God had Pharaoh in mind. There's a larger picture going on in Joseph's life than those individual components. And so last time that we've looked at things, we said that God was there working because he was preparing Joseph to be in the right place at the right hour. God is building Joseph's character. God is at work building Joseph's service. And God is trying to teach, teach Joseph to continually trust in him despite whatever circumstance he finds himself. So each one of us knows Romans 8.28, that God is working all things out for good. But we don't always feel like that those things that are working out are good. We don't know how to handle them at times. But God was at work to prepare Joseph for the proper, the proper hour, and his hour has not yet cometh. And so as the chapter closes, we find Joseph being forgotten. He was hoping that Pharaoh would have a, uh, the right ear from the cupbearer telling Pharaoh about the dream and how he answered and, and interpreted what that dream was. But in verse 23 of chapter 40, we find that he was forgotten by him. And we closed last time that even though he was forgotten by him, the Lord did not forget Joseph. And the workings of the Lord in Joseph's life comes to fruition in chapter 41. In chapter 41, it's been two long years of Joseph waiting, being disappointed, hearing nothing from God, figuring that this must be my lot. 
wondering when this would ever end, questioning the aspect, will he ever see his father again? Will he ever see his brothers again? What did those dreams actually mean if I'm stuck in prison about his family bowing down to him? Would he ever go back to the land of promise? Would he ever be buried with his forefathers? Those kinds of questions are always there in the back of one's mind when you're going through hardships. And so he could have been like uh, the theme that we find in the book of Job. There are three possibilities when you're going through hardships, asking questions on how you handle those things. He could have taken the advice of Joseph's, uh, Joseph, of Jacob's wife, where her advice was just curse God and die. Not that good advice, but that was her advice. Joseph could take the advice of, jo of Job's friends is that you must be in sin and you must rectify that situation because you wouldn't be in that situation if you didn't sin. Or he could take uh, Job's advice by continually trusting in the Lord throughout the situation. That's why in Job chapter 42, we find this. Let me just read Job chapter four of, um, 42, verses 1 through 3. It says, Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things, that no plan is impossible for you. Who is this who conceals advice without knowledge? Therefore I have declared that which I do not understand, things too wonderful for me which I do not know. He may not have understood God's workings, but he accepted them and trusted them. And so as we come to Genesis chapter 41, we see the result of the preparation time that Joseph has, has gone through. It's been, it's been uh, 17 years since the last time he saw his family. Joseph, as the chapter opens, is now 30 years old. Almost half of his life has been in slavery. And so memories of how people look begin to fade over time. His heart is yearning, and he finds himself to where God is going to answer. And he's going to answer his request suddenly. And so we're going to be looking at Pharaoh's dreams in the opening uh, three verses. And so um, the setting, Joseph is in Egypt, which was the most powerful nation, uh, nation at the time. And Pharaoh was the one in ultimate control of everything that took place in the nation. A matter of fact, he viewed himself as a god. And so he is in control. And so look at, look at how the uh, chapter opens. And now it happened at the, after the end of two full years that Pharaoh had a dream. The dream is going to be significant. And behold, he was standing by the Nile. And lo, from the Nile there came up seven cows, sleek and fat, and they grazed in the marsh grass. Then behold, seven other cows came up after them from the Nile, ugly and gaunt, and they stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. 
the ugly and gaunt cows ate up the seven sleek and fat cows. And then Pharaoh awoke. Jump down to verse 21. There's also one more aspect of the dream that we're going to find out later, but I just want to toss, toss it in here. In verse 21 it says, And yet they had devoured them. It could not be detected that they had devoured them, for they were just as ugly as they were before. Meaning these ugly, thin, gaunt, bony cows that looked like they were ready to die ate the fat ones, but what they ate had no nourishment value to it, and they stayed the same way. And so that was dream number one, the dream of the cows. And so Pharaoh had this dream, woke up, and we're going to find out he was disturbed by it. Verse 5, we see the second dream. And he fell asleep and dreamed a second time. That's significant, but we'll see why in a moment. And behold, seven ears of grain came up on a single stalk, plump and good. And behold, seven ears, thin and scorched by the east wind, sprouted up after them. The thin ears swallowed up the seven plump and full ears. Then Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. Now, I don't know. I, I can see cows eating other cows because they're, even though they're vegetarians, they got teeth. But I, don't, I don't, don't know how this would have looked like. I don't know if it was little veggie tails with little eyes and a little mouth sort of eating the other grains. But they ate um, these um, ears of, of grain, ate up the fat, plump ones. And so the dream of the cows and the dream of the grains. And then we begin to see in verse 8 that Pharaoh was disturbed. These were no ordinary dreams. It bothered him to his core. Look at verse 8. Now in the morning his spirit was troubled, so he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. And Pharaoh told him his dream, but there was no one who could interpret them to Pharaoh. This was no ordinary dream. It was more like a divine nightmare that he had. I'm sure these dreams seemed very real, but it disturbed him. Not just in its content, but in its realism. And with these two dreams, they were remarkably very Egyptian in, in his dreams because the cows came up out of, out of the river Nile and the grain was withered by a well-known dreaded east wind. And so Pharaoh was troubled and he wasted no time because that's how troubled he was to get the smartest people that he could come up with. So whether or not they were the best of the scientists of the time, the religious leaders, uh, the most scholarly people, the best of the occult, he rounded, he rounded them up to find out what these dreams meant. Not only was he distressed, but because he had two of them together. And then from these two different dreams no one, no one had any idea what they meant. God was at work blinding their minds. 
Now look at verse 9. <laughs> Time for the cupbearer to remember. Hey, verse 9. Then the chief cupbearer spoke to Pharaoh, saying, I would mention today about of my own offensive. Pharaoh was furious with his servants, and he put me in confinement in the house of the captain of the bodyguard, both me and the chief baker. We had a dream on the same night, he and I. Each of us dreamt according to the interpretation of his own dream. So he's saying, we had a dream, and it had, we had our own e interpretation for each dream, which was important. Verse 12, now a Hebrew youth was with us there, a servant, which is better translated slave. The, le the Legacy Bible will fix that, but a slave of the captain of the bodyguard. And we related them to him. And he interpreted our dreams for us. To each one he interpreted according to his own dreams. And just as he interpreted for us, <laughs> it, it was true. It happened. He restored me in my office, but he hanged him. So he's saying to Pharaoh, I know someone who has the ability to interpret dreams. So much so, he's a Hebrew, and that's important. Why is it important? He's telling Pharaoh, he's not one of us. He's an outsider. He is someone that even has a different God. And a matter of fact, he's a slave. But he's communicating to Pharaoh there was something special about him. He interpreted not only my dream, which stated that I would be exalted, but he also interpreted the chief baker's dream, stating that he would be hanged. Two different dreams, but yet both he was 100% accurate all the time. He wasn't just able to interpret a dream once and was wrong a second time, but he was flawless in his track record. And it all happened on the same night. And so he's telling Pharaoh, he did it for us, he could do it for you. I'm sure with all the special people and all the smart people that were in the room, and however long that may have taken, nobody had any suggestions at all. But here was the cupbearer's turn. After everyone had their time, cupbearer raises his hand, uh, I know somebody. And so in verse 14, Pharaoh calls for Joseph. Joseph is now before Pharaoh. Look at verse 14. Then Pharaoh sent and called for Joseph. It was interesting because Pharaoh is the one that sent it out. It wasn't whoever wasn't second in command or, you know, some underling. Pharaoh said, get him for me. And so it's the morning when Joseph wakes up. Typical morning, one morning just like every other morning for the past 12 years or so. Nothing has really changed, but yet all of a sudden there's a sudden disturbance. These people in royal garments come and they say, Pharaoh wants to see Joseph. If it was me, it was like, uh-oh, what did, what did I do? 
I didn't, I, I didn't do anything. I'm stuck in prison. But, but, uh, but he is there, and the head of the country is calling Joseph out by name to come into his presence. It's interesting because most Egyptians in Egypt probably would rarely even get close to Pharaoh, but they would probably never even see him outside of a chariot running by quickly. But there was practically no chance for a non-Egyptian, especially a slave, to ever be in the presence of Pharaoh. And God was bringing this about. Look at the next part of the verse. And they hurriedly brought him out of the dungeon, and when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came to Pharaoh. So Joseph had to prepare himself. Because here's Joseph, you're in prison. Who knows when the last time that he showered? Who knows when the last time that he shaved? Who knows what's crawling on his clothes? He had to have the proper clothes. And for the Egyptians, they liked their men to, be, um, to have the proper clothing, the proper look. And so Joseph had to prepare himself to be in the presence of Pharaoh, to follow the proper protocol. And so for him to prepare himself, how long would it have taken? Half hour? 45 minutes, it takes time to shave, and it takes time to get cleaned up, and it takes time to put on clothes. But he was going to be conversing with Pharaoh. But yet at the same time, when you look at everything that was said, things happened quickly. And yet we have the longest chapter in the Joseph narrative. There's great detail of what is going on. For as we shall see, Joseph's hour hath cometh. God has prepared Joseph for that very hour. And so we see that when God's time takes place and he is ready to work, he can do so very quickly. And so within an hour to an hour and a half, Joseph's life is going to be transformed from how it started. But it's been 14 years in which God has been working very slowly to bring him to this point. So the question could be asked, well, how does God work? Does he work slowly or does he work quickly? And the answer to that question is yes. God does work slowly. Sometimes it's painfully slowly, like in Joseph's situation. But when he works, he can work quickly. I sort of call it a Christian aha moment when God works quickly. Things are going along, and all of a sudden, you can, at least in my own life, physically say, that is God working, and we stand amazed. Because only God is the one who is bringing things about. And so God can work very slow, but when he does work in his providential way, it can be very quick, very sudden. So God does not give us random experiences in our life, but they're all there to fit his timing in his proper place. There are those experiences under his sovereign grace at work molding us 
and preparing us for a special moment which we may encounter. And for Joseph, those 14 years were painfully slow. We have a trial, we have a circumstance in our own life, and after a week, we think God fell off the throne. And we start complaining, and we start murmuring. But Joseph has been at this circumstance for 14 years. His timetable is very different from our timetable. And we learn very quickly that God is not in a panic. God is not in a hurry in the preparation process. And so God is at work in Joseph's life, preparing him for this very hour. And so his life will be altered. And so look at verse 15. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream. No one can interpret it. And I have heard it said about you. And when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. And so it was about what Joseph could accomplish, what he has done in the past and what he could provide for Pharaoh now. It's interesting because as Joseph begins to explain himself, it's very easy for him to take the credit uh, from God because he's done it before. And it's in the nature of man to take the credit for everything. It's just sort of what comes out. But Joseph was so, had God so much in his mind that he could not take the credit. And this is the first aspect of Joseph's prepared character that begins to stand out from every other person in Egypt. For he did not take credit for him because God has prepared him for this very moment for this first characteristic to stand out. What is it? He gives the credit to God and not himself. Look what he says in verse 16. And Joseph answered Pharaoh saying, it's not me. It's not me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. He puts God into the forefront of the discussion. Not just any God, for Pharaoh knew he was talking about a different God. It was the God of the Hebrews, because he was Hebrew. And whomever God that was, Joseph saying that God that my God is going to give him an answer to his situation. And so Joseph is stating up front that God working is sovereign and he is in control of every aspect. And so then we begin to see Joseph's humility begin to come about because of this statement, where 14 years previously he was sort of me-centered, and God had brought him to a place of humility, not to have his eyes on himself, because he, w- he went from being insensitive to his brothers to being very sensitive in front of Pharaoh. And so this new humility characterized him. It's not me. It's all of God. So as Joseph's discuss, discussion sort of unfolds, there's a depth of protocol of the situation which he is following. Because this man in, in front of Joseph isn't just any old person. He is the leader of the most powerful nation in the world. He is Pharaoh. And there's a way that you talk to him and handle yourself in front of Pharaoh. You give him the respect. You give him the, uh, the praise. It's, all, it's almost like the protocol that if Queen Elizabeth were to call you to come into her presence... 
You have to follow a certain protocol. You have to listen to all those around you. You have to do such and such when you're in front of the queen. If you're a woman and go in front of the queen, you curtsy. If you're a man to go in front of the queen, you bow your head. That is what's expected. If you're standing there and she's seated, you continue to stand until she asks you to sit down. If it takes an hour that you're standing, it takes an hour for, your st for you to stand. There's a protocol that comes about. You just don't walk in to the queen and say, how are things going, Betty? There's, there's, there's a formality. There's a protocol. It's not what's done. When you talk to the queen, you first call her your majesty. And then every time after that, you call her ma'am. And so how Joseph is handling himself is, is in a very respectful, respectful way coming from his humility. And when you look at uh, verse 17, we get to see Pharaoh gets right to the point because he is so disturbed, he needs an answer. And Joseph is going to tell him an answer just as fast. Verse 17, so Pharaoh spoke to Joseph in my dream, behold, I was standing on the bank of the Nile, and behold, the seven cows, the sleek and fat, came up out of the Nile. They grazed on the marshland. Lo, the seven cows, seven other cows came up, poor, ugly, gone. Such I have never seen for ugliness in all the land of Egypt. And the lean and ugly cows ate up the first seven cows however that looked, yet they have devoured them. It could not be detected they had devoured them, for they were just as ugly as before, and then I awoke. Verse 22, his second dream. And also, I saw also in my dream, behold, seven ears, full and good, came up on a single stalk, and lo, seven ears withered, thin and scorched by the east, east wind, sprouted up after them, and the thin ears swallowed up the seven good ears. And then the last part of, of verse 24, and I told it to, my, to the ma magicians and no one could explain it to me. Nobody knows what you got for me. And so we get, we get to find then verses 25 through 32, Joseph has a sobering interpretation not sobering in a, in, mean, uh, in a bad way for Pharaoh, but its interpretation would have a long implication. And so Joseph first states that the two dreams, though they were very different, one was cows and one was, one was grain, were, they had the same interpretation. That's significant. Give me a moment, because I hinted last week that that was important, the dreams. But that's important. Verse 25, now Joseph said to Pharaoh, Pharaoh's dreams are one and the same. God has told to Pharaoh what he is about to do. So Joseph mentions God when he starts. He mentioned God's God again, that God is sovereign, and he is going to tell Pharaoh what is going to transpire. But not just that, that it's going to come from God, that God is sovereign. So it's more than just telling the future, but it's telling Pharaoh that God is sovereignly going to bring it about. Because it also gets repeated in verse 28. 
And so there's one thing to tell what the future is, but it's another thing to state what the cause of what transpires is. It's all coming from God. And so verse 26, and the seven good cows are seven years. Uh, makes sense. Seven cows, seven years. Seven good ears, seven years. The dreams are one and the same. The seven lean and ugly cows came up after, after them are seven years. So there's a first year of seven and a second year of seven. And the seven thin ears scorched by the east wind will be seven years of famine. It is as I have spoken to Pharaoh. God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. More than just the future, but God is sovereignly behind it. Behold, seven years of great abundance are coming in all the land of Egypt. So this is at the core of what the dreams stand for. There's going to be seven years of abundance, great abundance, overflowing abundance like you have never seen. Verse 30, and after them seven years of famine will come. It's going to be so severe. Look what the next part of the verse says. And all the abundance will be forgotten in the land of Egypt, and the famine will ravage the land. So the abundance will be unknown in the land because of that subsequent famine, and it will be very severe. And so this is no ordinary famine, because they were used for times in which famine would sort of strike. But this time is going to be very severe or exceedingly oppressive, exceedingly massive. It's going to be so massive that there's not going to be any food produced at all. Normally when famine comes about, it's through a locust infestation. It comes from drought. It comes from prolonged excessive heat. And so the crops just don't grow. There's nothing to harvest. They just don't grow at all. There's no hope in it. And most of the time within the area, it lasts like a year or two. So they were familiar with times of drought, time of locust infestation. And so you just sort of grin and bear it and sort of uh, cut back where you need to cut back. But there's no way that one can cut back enough of, for seven years in which there is no harvest at all. None. How do you feed your, your family? How do you feed your livestock if there's nothing to produce? You can start to eat your livestock, but what, what do you do after they're gone? And it's year three. There's, there, there's nothing. It's four more years. How do you get by? I remember when COVID first started, all of the TP was gone in the first month. It, it was just gone. Sometimes you'd go to the store and you, no matter how much money you had, there was just none to be had. Well, virus so far just lasted uh, over a year, year and a half. Imagine seven years with no TP. For all these people who stocked up, they would have ran out sooner or later. And so being without would be known. Similarly here, there's no amount of food unless you prepare that you'd be able to withstand a severe, oppressive famine. And God is telling Pharaoh ahead of time, this is what's happening, 
prepare for it. And so, look at verse 32. Joseph goes one step further. Here's where the repeating of dreams has its emphasis. Because also within the Hebrew, whenever something is repeated, it's there repeated for emphasis. Same thing with his dreams. And now as for the repeating of dreams to Pharaoh, it means that the matter is determined by God and God will quickly bring it about. Joseph is stating that the repeating of the dreams is important. And now we know why it's important. The the repeating is evidence that God is the one behind it. That the repetition shows that things are fixed and things are determined and it will come about. That's why it's repeated to Pharaoh twice. And it's interesting because when you begin to If you read through the story for the first time, you would be saying to yourself, I've seen this before, haven't I? Joseph had two dreams. Cupbearer and the baker had two dreams the same night. And now, Pharaoh had two dreams. Why is there the pairing of dreams? From the first pair to the second pair to the third pair. Why? Because God is behind it. God has predetermined it, and it will come about. The dreams with the brother, it was showing that God will bring about the family bowing down to Joseph. And so there were two dreams, one to the brothers, and one he told to the brothers and to Jacob. God's going to be behind that. The dreams with the cupbearer, two different interpretations. So he had two, one dream for each person, two different interpretations. Why? To verify to Pharaoh that Joseph had the ability to interpret dreams, that God was behind the interpretations and not Joseph. And now here with Pharaoh, it shows the famine was a certainty because of the repetition of the dreams. God was behind it. If you're an astute reader and you're reading the Joseph story for the first time, this has been nothing new. There's been a doubling of the events throughout Joseph's life. Why? Because God was behind it. Joseph had the two dreams. The brothers had two different plans to deal with Joseph. Joseph experienced two humiliations two different interpretations that he had in prison, and now he's experiencing two exaltations. God's fingerprint is all over Joseph's life. To underscore to Joseph, to the nation of Israel, when they go into captivity, not not captivity, um, into slavery, and then also for us, that God is at work and he is trustworthy. He is there, and he will bring about his plan in his timing. And so there have been double of the events leaping off the page all the time, and most of the time I've missed it. And so Joseph then could have stopped right there, because that's all Pharaoh asked him to do, was to interpret his dream. But he goes one step further. Look at verse 33, it says that now let Pharaoh, he's going to give Pharaoh advice. He's going to go one step further, because it's one thing to give him the interpretation of dream, 
what to do next. And what to do next is coming from God. Let Pharaoh look for a man discerning and wise. And through it all, Joseph is not really saying, look at me. He said, you have to find somebody who is discerning and wise and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh take action to appoint overseers so there are sub there's sub people underneath him in charge of the land, and let him extract a fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt in the seven years of abundance. So in the seven years of great abundance, how, how, how much was that abundance? It was overflowing. Not, um, not only was it overflowing, but it was exceptional. So much so that Joseph said that whoever you put into authority... I'm read my lips, Pharaoh. I'm going to raise your taxes 20%. Raise their taxes 20% to prepare for the time of famine. But it's interesting because nobody loves tax hike. It just, it's, it's just part of our DNA. It just doesn't happen. But it's going to be so abundant, the, the grain that's going to happen in seven years, they won't mind. Take, take, take my money. Go, go ahead. Take my grain. And so a man, a special man, is going to be needed to be able to do the leadership that it takes to be in control and to plan for those seven years of abundance so you don't waste things, and then to be able to restrain himself of the seven years of famine so the entire nation could survive, but also provide for other nations outside of them. Time to make money for, for Pharaoh. And so find yourself someone who is discerning and full of wisdom. If you know any kind of authoritarian government, corruption can run rampant. So you could be planning for the future, but through corruption, things just start disappearing. And so when things come, you need to be prepared and have your army guarding, guarding everything during this time. And so Pharaoh began to hear Joseph's explanation, and he received comfort from it. Not just from the interpretation of the dreams, because it clicked with him. That's what it means. It just stood out. Aha, that's what it means. But also there was advice. He didn't have to form a committee meeting to have them sort of run through the, the top five scenarios on how to solve this. Joseph's advice was already there prepared. This is what you need to do because God is orchestrating it and God is telling me this is how you carry it about. Someone with discernment and wisdom. And so verse 38, Pharaoh answers and he says to his servants, the people around him, can we find a man like this? Like this, with this kind of wisdom, in whom there is a divine spirit? Now, Joseph probably thought that his task was done, and he'd be going back to, to his cell, hoping that, that Pharaoh would reward him by letting him out of a prison. But in the worst case, just sending him back. But he had no idea what was about to transpire. Look at verse 30. And so Pharaoh said to, to Joseph, probably after all the guys said, I, I don't know who's, who's that smart. And he said to Joseph, since God has informed you of all of this, 
there is no one so discerning and wise as you are. Where did that come from, Joseph? From the 14 years of preparation. Not only running um, Potiphar's house and God prospering through Potiphar's house, but also being in charge of the, jail, of the jail and running the jail for the captain of the guard. He became discerning and wise. And God spoke to him. And if God spoke to him now, God will speak to him later on. And so Pharaoh sees two rare qualities coming out of Joseph. And since Pharaoh was pleased at the interpretation of the dream, he was pleased with Joseph's recommendation. And so he accepted Joseph's word as coming from God. That's important. But not for this time, not for this week. But we'll come back to that. And so Joseph had a special relationship with his God, and Pharaoh saw it. And look at verse 40, because Joseph didn't see this coming, but yet Joseph realized, ha God's hand is in this. You shall be over my house. We'll look at that word next time. According to your command, all my people shall do homage. Only in the throne you'll be greater than, than only I will be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, see, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. And to solidify that, he had a ceremony. Pharaoh took off his ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's ring, a sign of authority that he would act on behalf of Pharaoh. And clothe him in garments. Take off those nice-looking garments. Give him royal garments of fine linen. Put, some gold, put a gold necklace around his neck. Verse 43, and had him ride in his second chariot, a place of honor and prestige behind Pharaoh. And they proclaimed before him, Balvenie. And he sent him over all the land of Egypt. God was at work in the life of Joseph. It gave Pharaoh comfort to know that this man could receive the words of God and know and represent him. And so he put him in charge as essentially prime minister of all Egypt. He wasn't the controller, because that was Pharaoh's job. He was second in command. And when you begin to see the results of everything working on, God's fingerprints is all over this situation. God is uh, working through natural circumstances. God is working through the confusing dreams. God is working through Joseph's spiritual gifts. God is working through revealed wisdom. God is working through the softening of the hearts that are in Pharaoh and around Pharaoh. God is over all of this. And so Joseph received the opportunity that he never saw coming. He is now released from prison. And so God has taken him to a place of exaltation to, to serve Pharaoh at his beck and call, to prepare the nation during the times of abundance to store up, 
to make sure massive starvation does not take place for any of Pharaoh's um, citizens, but also during the times of great starvation that will take place, that people will be able to receive food and be able to survive because of the preparation that God has spoken through the words of Joseph. And so God is at work. If Joseph was sort of complaining before Pharaoh, talking about the adversity and uh, trials that he was going through, it would come, come across the wrong way. Joseph was there just to put God on display. And so God was not far ever from Joseph's thoughts, and he brought God front and center. And the promotion didn't originate from Joseph, but Pharaoh saw his abilities that God had prepared him to do, and those things came from the Lord. Let me re read for you Psalm 76, verses 6 and 7, because the psalmist recognized this. The psalmist writes, For not from the east, nor from the west, nor from the desert comes exultation, but God is the judge and puts down the one and exalts the other. In 1 Samuel 2, in verse 30, we find this, Therefore the Lord God of Israel declares, I did indeed say to your house and the house of your father that you should walk before me forever. And now declares the Lord, far be it from me, for those who honor me I will honor, and those who despise me will be lightly esteemed. And so God is there exalting Joseph because of his faithfulness in trusting God during the times of immense hardship. He didn't do it to give Joseph the stuff that comes with it, great stuff. And that doesn't necessarily come across to every believer at every time. No, God has his own plan for everyone. And so most of the time when we hear messages about Joseph, that if you're faithful and you trust in God, God will bless you. And that's true. But God will bless you with stuff. That's not true. Because that is not the point of the story. The point of the story is far different. This chapter is full of irony. Joseph does get exalted because of his faithfulness. God's not through with him yet. But throughout this story, when we begin to look through the lens of the themes of the book of Genesis, the land, the seed, the blessing, it's all wrong. It's all not what it's supposed to be. It's full of irony. It's full of contrasts. And the reader reading through this should be seeing it as it leaps off the page that because of the land and the seed and the blessing, it's not making sense. But that's next time. Next time when my number's called, we shall look at that. But it comes back to us. Where are you in your understanding of the providence of God? Because God works slowly, and sometimes painfully slowly. 
As God is working out his plans, you have your goals and aspirations. God tweaks things and changes things as things go. But God can work suddenly in your life to where that's why I lost my job or that's why the Lord had to humble me in my marriage because it was with me that I was wrong. What is God teaching you through the hardships that you are going through? It may be that you have never seen God work in your life. You've never seen God just sort of bring about things and trials are hard and guilt and shame overwhelms you. You might have a religion, but you don't have a relationship with the Savior. God is providentially working to have you see your sin and to come to Christ and put your faith and trust in him. So the story of Jacob is one of God's providential working for those who don't know him, but also for those who do know him because dark clouds are coming. Father, so much more could be said. But like with the hymn writer writes, Great is thy faithfulness, O God my Father. There is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changes not thy compassions. They fail not. As thou hast been, thou forever wilt be. And then with the chorus, Great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning, new mercies I see. All I have needed, thy hand has provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. Father, if somebody feels the heaviness of the situations that, we, that they are going through, Father, we have counselors here that can come alongside them and to open the word of God to show them how they can endure, how they can persevere, to get answers from your word. But also, if there's someone here who do not know you, come, talk to us. Let us show you from the word how if you could die tonight, you would know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you would stand before the living God. Thank you, Father. We pray this in Jesus' name.